Our scripture in this morning uh, is actually a little different than what's in your worship folder. Uh, it's from Colossians chapter 1 and then 1 Peter chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thank you, Aaron. As Aaron mentioned, we are continuing on in our series called On the Cross. This is a series that will last the weeks leading up to Easter, will culminate on Easter Sunday. And one of the helpful things about a series like this is on one hand, it's a very foundations type series. There's nothing more basic to Christianity than the cross of Christ, right? Jesus dying on the cross, you see it at football games, God so loved the world that he gave what? His son. To what? Die on the cross. So on the one hand, it's like, why are we talking about this again? Why do we name a whole series and talk about the cross for six weeks? But on the other hand, parallel with that is the reality that for as long as the church has existed, we have built into our rhythms of life together seasons of remembrance, seasons of reflection on these foundational things. And this time in the church calendar, churches all over the world and all throughout history are reflecting on exactly what we're reflecting on today. And the scriptures are rich with different angles, different perspectives. Ben mentioned last week, this series is kind of like a diamond and you look at the cross of Christ as a diamond and you you turn it a little bit and you see it from a different perspective and then a different facet and then a different facet. And in this series, you could say we're looking at six different pictures or facets of this beautiful diamond. And this morning, we're talking about redemption. We've been singing about it. It was in our call to worship text. And it's a clear word and it's a clear idea all throughout the scriptures, this idea of redeeming or buying back. And all six of these pictures of the cross are related to a specific sphere of life. Last week was relationships. The sphere of relationships, we talked about reconciliation as the facet we looked at. And the fact that although we were far off from God in Jesus by the cross, he's brought us near to him. We were at enmity with God, but through the cross, we now are embraced by him. So that was the sphere last week of relationships. The sphere this week is that of master and slave. That's what redemption comes from. The picture of redemption is from one master to another one domain to another. That's the idea of redemption, of being bought back. So if you're going to talk about slavery, if you're going to talk about redemption, you have to talk about the positive side, which is freedom. And we love freedom in the United States, don't we? Land of the free. And I'm not mocking or or trying to belittle at all. There's something beautiful about freedom. In fact, we're going to talk about how freedom is a core value in the scriptures. It's, it's all throughout. But there, in our culture, there's a particular view of freedom that isn't always helpful. And the word that we may use is authenticity. If we talk about personal freedoms, there is a way to talk about it 
that the Constitution of the United States may speak of, or there's a way to talk about freedom that has to do with civil liberties. But particularly, there's something else we're getting at when we talk about authenticity, isn't there? There's something when we say, I am free and my mission in life is to live an authentic life. There's something else we're we're getting at. We're getting at this idea that the only true freedom is freedom from all constraints. And we've talked about this before at New City. And we see this in the prominent hero narrative. In fact, there are many hero narratives in literature throughout time. But if you look at our sitcoms, if you look at our movies, even for our children, maybe especially for our children, there seems to only be one hero narrative left, one hero archetype left. And that is Elsa and Moana and a growing natural bent of you and me. And that is this. We see the predominant hero narrative in pop culture is when the individual looks inside and finds out who they are. And this is where that's not heroic. What is heroic is finding out who you are, deciding what you want to be, and then asserting that over and against everyone else in society. There's no right. There's no wrong. It's all about me. And I've seen it and you don't know. And so now for me to become a hero, I must find the courage to assert my power over you to become who I am. Right? That is the narrative. That is the hero narrative. You'll see it everywhere if you haven't seen it already. And as Christians, we shouldn't be, well, in one sense, we should be concerned about this, but in another sense, we should be able to look and see some value in it as well, at least in this respect, that freedom, authenticity is a central theme in the Bible as well. And in fact, it's a central theme in the image of Christ's work for us on the cross. But what's interesting is most people don't think that when they think of Christianity, do they? They don't think of freedom. They think of rules. They think of constraints. They think of oppression. They think of regression, right? And in a sense, that's true, right? We do see constraint in the Bible, but the Bible teaches us that constraint, when it's the right constraint, is a good thing. And you and I, uh, we resonate with that, and I hope to show you that as we move on. But whether or not we agree with the fact that the right constraint is what brings us freedom, not lack of constraint. We all live with constraints. The question is, which constraints will you choose? Which constraints do you want to live with? Love, for example, is a constraint. If you choose that you want to love someone, you have accepted a certain amount of constraint. If you get married, you've chosen constraint. Because in order to truly love someone, You have to forego other things that you want. You have to forego your selfishness. And therefore, you have accepted a certain amount of constraint to truly love someone. And you know what's interesting, although we don't have time to get into it, is if authenticity is the king of our culture, then love has to be the queen, right? Those are two core values in our culture. And so we all accept sacrifice, but... If we live with the proper constraints, it will lead to freedom. But if we live with the improper constraints, it will lead to bondage. And this is exactly the way the Bible talks about our need for redemption. So redemption is a key image that we have to understand in order to grasp what Jesus did on the cross. And there are two concepts that are connected to the idea of redemption. The one is being delivered from something. And the other is 
being purchased. So this idea of being delivered from slavery and being purchased by the deliverer. These are two twin concepts with the idea of redemption. So we're just going to take them one at a time from our scripture texts. So the first one is incorrect in the scriptures. Uh, it's actually uh, from Colossians 1, which Aaron read. That's my fault. Uh, I changed it too late after we had already printed these things. And so that's on me. I'll bl- well, never mind. Bad joke. Okay, so next. May the, the cross of Christ, okay, delivers Christians from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. That was the, the passage that Aaron read in Colossians 1, was that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so what we see here is we see the reality of freedom. That freedom is not just deliverance from, but it's being delivered to something. It's not just being delivered from, but it's delivered to. So you've been saved from something, and that's not good news until you know what you've been saved to. So first, let's just look at the, the first phrase in this passage, Colossians 1. He has delivered us. Okay, so just as God rescued his people from the slavery in Egypt under the old covenant, he's now delivered them from the domain of darkness, from the realm of Satan and his evil powers. When I was reading this this week, I came across Acts 26. Acts 26, Paul is recounting when Jesus knocked him off his horse and spoke to him and gave him his mission at his conversion. And these are the words of Jesus. This is how Jesus described Paul's ministry of proclaiming the gospel. He says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So you see this idea of being transferred from one kingdom to another is being not transferred from one kingdom to autonomy, but it's from one kingdom to another kingdom. Do you see this? If we understand only freedom to be being delivered from, then we sort of maybe believe that if God saves us, if God delivers us, he then saves us to do me, to be me. But the Bible nowhere ever talks about deliverance that way. The Bible nowhere ever talks about being redeemed, being bought so that you can just be yourself. It says that you're being delivered from darkness to light, from one kingdom to another. And we have to note a couple of things then. First is that God will always take the initiative in redeeming his people. He delivers us. This is always the case. From our call to worship, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Jesus says it this way. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So the first thing we have to notice is that God calls us out, but not just into autonomy, not just into self-law, but he calls us out of slavery. He redeems us to bring us to himself, to belong to him. And so it's not from the power of evil, to self-law, that's what the word autonomy means, by the way, self-law. It's two Greek words, 
self-law. That's not what God is redeeming us to. He's redeeming us to his kingdom. And one author puts it this way. The fallacy, that's the false belief of much contemporary belief of Protestants is that less law equals more freedom and that no law equals all freedom. Just pause. Do you believe that? I mean, really, in your heart of hearts, do you believe that my main problem is that I don't have enough constraint? I mean, I have too much constraint, right? So you just live your life throwing off constraint. Most of us believe that. Most of us believe if I just had less law, I'd be more free. If I had no law at all, I'd be all free. He goes on to say, quite another relationship between law and freedom impresses itself on us in the Bible. In the Bible, less law equals less freedom. No law equals no freedom. You see, this is, we understand this. We understand that the proper constraints bring more freedom. Think about something like the president of the United States. Okay, so if you read anything about the president and how the White House functions, going doesn't matter what administration, going back multiple administrations, you'll see that the president's day is set up to where he is very constrained. He's going to wear the clothes that someone set out for him. He's not going to get to choose what he's going to wear. He's going to wear that. He has no idea what he's going to do until he gets there and somebody hands him a list and says, this is what you're doing today. Everything he does is given to him. Why? Well, it's to keep him from decision fatigue. It's for him to be so cared for so prepped, so constrained, you could even say, so that he actually can embrace a more important freedom. And the more important freedom for him to embrace is when he is the only one who can make a decision. He hasn't made a single decision yet that day. And so he's ready to bring all of his energy to that decision. You see, we should be glad that that is the case. So if it's true in in small ways like that, right? It's like, it's why you and I create rituals for ourselves and we create habits. It's so that we don't have to think as much. Why? So that we're free for those things of higher value. And so if this is true in small things like this, how much more then? when we're thinking about the sovereign realities of our life, when we're thinking about what we're going to give our life to, right? Human beings were created to belong to God and to rule and reign in his name. But here's the good news is that when we submit to him, he provides for us and he protects us, which means we don't have to give our thought to the smaller things of, well, who's going to provide for me? Who's going to protect He is. When you belong to him, he will provide for you. When you belong to him, he will protect you. This is why the picture of redemption in the Bible is about being setting free to live how you were created to live in holiness and in relationship to God. The model of redemption in the Bible is actually the Exodus. And when you read the Exodus, you remember what happens. Moses goes and tells Pharaoh, God told me to tell you, let his people go. And so often we can stop there. We can think, okay, so redemption then is mainly based on God saving his people from oppression. 
But that's only half of it. Because I got on my fancy Bible software this week and I typed in every time the phrase, let my people go appears in the first five books of the Bible. Every single time in the proper context. Let my people go. The next words say this, so that they may serve me. That's what it says every single time. Let my people go so that they may serve me. You see, if, if you don't serve God, who else are you going to serve? Well, the answer in our culture would be me. I'll serve me. Because that's where freedom is found. Every cartoon, every sitcom tells you that freedom is found in yourself. But which self? Don't don't you ever war within you? What's a right decision? What's wrong? Who I really am or who I'm not, right? You have warring desires within you, do you not? It can be something like, what should I do today? It should be all the way to how do I parent this child? It should be all the way to what am I gonna do with my life? How do I restore this relationship? You have competing realities within you all the time. So how do you know which one is really you? Is it the you that just says, hey, I'm gonna cut off this relationship. We're at odds, but it's not worth pursuing this person for reconciliation. But then there's this other part of you that says, I really should pursue them. It's the right thing to do. It's the good thing to do to be reconciled. Which one is you? You better answer that question because it's gonna happen. It might be happening right now. Are you the sovereign Lord of your life? And if not, who is? Right? Here's some, here are some examples of who the sovereign Lord of your life could be. It could be other people. It could be their opinions of you. It could be that the way you talk, the way you dress, the way you carry yourselves, or the way you don't talk, dress, or carry yourselves is mainly because you want to be seen by other people in a certain way. It could be things too. I was reading this week of, of a guy who, when he, he's reflecting on how much uh, of his identity, how much he was controlled by things, even simple things, his house, his car. And he said, that all changed for me when I joined the United States military because the first thing they did was they shaved my head and they gave me the same clothes as everyone else. And I looked around and I realized anything that could differentiate me from them is gone. And it was in that moment that he realized how much stock he put in things that his whole day, most, most of his day was thinking about what he didn't have or what he had and how that either put him under someone else or over someone else. Right? It could be status. It could be work. Right? If, if you go to work and you work for anyone except your neighbor, then you're worshiping your work because you think it'll give you something. You think it'll give you something that will make it okay. You think it'll give you something that will make you of some significance. But if we believe in calling as Christians when it comes to work, there must be a caller. 
And that caller who's called you to do that work has called you to do that work for your neighbor. And if you're doing it for any other reason, if I'm doing this right now for any other reason, if I'm preaching, if I'm doing this so that, I mean, anything, it doesn't matter, except for you to the glory of God, then I am a slave to that thing. And I need to be freed from that thing. I am in bondage to that. And so these are examples that exist actually in the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Both in darkness and in light, but the way that status and things and relationships operate in your life, depending on what kingdom you're in, they'll operate drastically differently, won't they? You'll either live for these things or you'll rejoice in them because you've been given freedom by the one who's given them to you. And so the first concept when we talk about redemption is being delivered from one kingdom to another, from one Lord to another, not from constraints to autonomy. And the second concept and the final one for today when we talk about redemption is we have to talk about the idea of ransom or purchasing or cost, okay? And we see it in in Peter's passage, which is in your worship bulletin. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so then the way I'll say this is the cross ransoms Christians from their slavery to futility to great significance. I was talking with one of my kids this week about what does the word precious mean? They were listening to a song and they heard the the words precious blood. And they said, what does precious mean? And it's actually not as easy to describe as you might think. So it made me pause and think about it. And I said, well, think about something that's really special to you. Think about something that would be really, really hard for you to give up, to give to someone else. That thing is precious to you. And then I pointed them to this verse. I said, you know, Jesus was really precious to his father, just like you're really precious to me. But Jesus wanted to be, but the father wanted to be with us. So he gave Jesus his precious son to purchase us. And then we begin to have this conversation about what that means regarding God's love for us. That God would purchase us, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of his son. The immediate context of this word ransom to everyone who would have been reading this in this audience was the freedom of a slave. It would have been the immediate context. To ransom someone would have been to buy a slave for yourself. Okay? So in this passage, the concept of transfer of ownership then becomes explicit. The idea of ransom denotes cost, purchasing, buying, a changing of owners. So this stress of new ownership and the costly act on the part of the new owner is given to us so that we know we are now legitimately 
and contractually belonging to another. So this is why I'm laboring this. This is why I'm using these technical words. It's because whenever you feel condemnation because of your sin, you have to realize that if you're in Christ, you have been purchased by his blood. And therefore, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are a slave to righteousness because you now have a new owner. So when we hear the word redemption, we have to realize it's not just being delivered from these horrible influences in our life and the power of sin. It is those things. But also you now have been transferred to another Lord, another king. And this old king, this old Lord called sin is going to keep hounding you. It's going to keep pursuing you. It's going to keep condemning you. It's going to keep telling you how dirty you are. It's going to keep telling you how unworthy you are. And one thing that Lord is not going to do is remind you that you no longer have to listen to that. The one thing that Lord is not going to do is tell you that Jesus's blood has purchased you and you now belong to another. But you need to hear me say that what this verse is telling you, what the doctrine of redemption tells you is that you have a new owner. You now belong to God. Paul talks about this in the same way too. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You were bought with a price. Same thing Peter is saying. You were purchased. So all over the place, it's clear that Christ is our redeemer who purchased us with his death and we therefore belong to him and he is our new master. One commentator captures the significance of this in its first century social context by saying this, quote, the price brings the believer into Christ's own possession as his or her Lord, who then takes over responsibility and care for the purchased one. I want to stop there for a second. Some of us, when we think about, it may, it may even sound so repressive to say we've gone from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness because we think, why is that good news? I'm still a slave. And it's because of this right here. It's that there are certain types of masters who will purchase you, who will own you, who will use you, who will promise you good things, and then they'll discard you. There are masters like status and like the opinion of others and like things that you will give yourself to, you will submit to, you will bow down to. And at first it'll work. And then you'll give more of yourself and get less from them. And you'll give more of yourself and get even less from those things. Until finally, you give everything and you get nothing in return. But if Jesus is your master, What the Bible teaches us is that now we belong to Christ. And so therefore he provides for us. He cares for us and requires that we submit to him. And yet when we do, we find true freedom. So the quote goes on. The Christian belongs to Christ, not to himself or to herself. This is status and honor. For in the first century, a slave represents his or her Lord. 
And it is freedom for the believer when they are placed in the hands of the Lord Jesus for his care, his decisions, his directions, his responsibility are always for them. So you can choose what master you want to serve. You can. And the only masters, all the masters that you would serve besides Jesus will require everything and in the end give you nothing. And yet to say Christ redeemed me on the cross then is to say he now made me his own. And therefore he provides everything. I belong to him because he wanted me. No other master can say that. No other master can say that. Other masters say, I purchased you because I need you. I purchased you because I need to use you in my service to give you what I want. But Jesus can say, I purchased you because I want you. I don't need anything from you. I purchased you because I love you. And I want to bring you back to the father. You choose which master is good. Every other master will use you and then discard you. But Jesus rescues you and loves you and wants you. And when you look at the word futile, you were ransomed from the futile ways. The word futile oftentimes is translated as worthless. And the word worthless is defined as having no real value or use. And so Jesus, the one of infinite worth, gave his life to save us from being worthless. Jesus, the one of infinite worth, purchased us to give us significance. But the way sin twists this is that we actually end up oftentimes giving our life to the futile ways, thinking that's where we'll find significance. But the Bible teaches us that we will never find significance in worthless ways. We will never find worth in worthless ways. We will only find worth when the one of ultimate value poured out his infinite blood to restore us from worthless things to give us a significant life. A life where we belong, a life that has value. This is the central truth of redemption. This is why on the picture, there are chains that are broken because you once were a slave to futile ways and now you've been set free to belong to the one who gives you significance. So the invitation of Jesus and the doctrine of redemption is to come drink from abundant life so that you can leave the futile ways and you can embrace the way of value. So I'll leave you with this. This is a real decision you have to make right now. And that is choose right now who you will serve. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that so often we think we are choosing you, but in fact, we're really disguising the fact that we choose ourselves. 
And we confess to you that even when we choose ourselves, it's influenced by other things like status or opinion of others or work. And all the while, we just want to be significant. We just want to be valuable. And that's okay because you've chosen, you've made us to be that way and you've chosen to restore that to us. But you've done it by purchasing us with your precious blood. Father, we confess that so often we live our life as though if we could just find the true us, that we would be set free. But so often we are our own problem. So how, how can we find the true us? So as we respond now, I, I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would show each one of us just a glimpse of some one thing that we are bowing down to, to give us life. And then when we see it, make it clear to us how you set us free from that, how you offer true life instead of counterfeit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.